0: One Hope Church uh, It's a privilege to be back with you today um, after a time in, in Mexico, which was fantastic. Thank you all for your love and prayers and care uh, during that time. Um, for the last 20-some messages I've given have been through an interpreter, and that's a little different, because every sentence you have a pause, and you can think, okay, exactly how do I want to say, you know, this next sentence, this next thing, and you can collect your ideas as you go through, so now I have to get out of that groove remembering that there's not somebody standing next to me, um, who's going give, to give that oppor- me that opportunity. Um, and I, I did actually preach for the first time in Spanish uh, when I was in Mexico. Now, now, hold on. Before you get too excited, let me, hold on, let me, let me clarify. So um, the, the church we work with down there now has its own uh, radio station. They used to buy Radio Tom on another station. Now they have their own radio station. And it's on top of this mountain. So you drive up to almost 9,000 feet above sea level. And it was, it was winter there that evening, let me tell you. Um, And they've got this little, you know, small little place and they've got a tower there and they've got the equipment and it's just phenomenal because that radio station can actually reach over to Mexico City and over to the port city of Veracruz and then north and south and it's online. So people were calling in from or sending messages in from Chicago and Phoenix and Houston. Just awesome. And so, I'm going there expecting that I'm going to do what I've been doing and give a message in English and it's going to be translated into Spanish and then we'll have some question and answer via text and you know, answering the questions on, on the radio. And I get there and they go, oh, we, we realize that our license, our charter only allows us um, to have Spanish, that there can be no English word, you know, spoken on this radio station. So you're going to have to do this in Spanish. Now, at that point, my heart is like, you know, because, you know, and I haven't, I haven't been nervous to preach in front of anyone or any group, and, you know, it's, it's hard to remember, um, but, man, I've I, I got that feeling back of what that feels like, start pacing quickly, so, you know, knees starting to knock a little bit, you know, all of that, which in some ways was cool and refreshing, but then it was like, wait a second, wait a second, we can record this first, right, and then we can play the recording because you play recorded things. It's like okay, so I'm in a van speaking into a phone with a napkin over it, but it took two hours of preparation, writing things out, you know, multiple takes to try to get pronunciation, you know, somewhat close. And uh, we ended up with about three and a half minutes total of audio, um, broken into three messages. So I was joking on the Sunday morning. I said, "Hey, I can give this. I can do this now in Spanish, you know." And Um, But for what we've got today, you know, y'all settle in, we'll be here for about the next 60 hours. (laughs) That's the math on it. Or translation. So uh, we we went with translation again. But that that was a wonderful experience. I'll uh, try to tell a couple of other uh, stories from Mexico as we're um, in the book of Acts this morning. Uh, We're beginning our study in the book of Acts this morning. Um, We're going to take it easy. Um, Just the first 14 uh, verses. But there's a lot in these 14 verses. It's a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. Um, so you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so Luke wrote um, his, his Gospel. He, he wrote it to Theophilus uh, so that Theophilus could be certain of all the things that he had been told, so that his faith would be firm. And then he continues um, to write to Theophilus in the, the book of Acts, telling the history of the early church, so in the first um, bit of, of Acts, it's actually really largely a repetition of the of Luke twenty four, the very end of Luke twenty four, um, which we ended um, early summer. Uh, then we you know did the book of James, which was finished up last week, um, and now we're in the book of Acts. But it's a, it's actually kind of cool that it does this because it's going to remind us this morning of. You know what we had studied in the Gospel of Luke and set the foundation as we move forward to study the Book of Acts and the the life and the adventure of the early church. Um, so let's read the first fourteen verses of Acts chapter one, and then we'll pray. It says, "In my first book, I told you Theophilus about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven." after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the forty days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. And once he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water. But in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white men robed suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. And when they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house while they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And they all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning uh, to come and to worship you and to uh, sing praise to you, God. We pray that even now you would teach us uh, by your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would see more of your son Jesus um, and what he taught and his instructions and the priorities that he had uh, for his first disciples and those same priorities that he has for us today. And so help us to have understanding this morning as we look into your word. Thank you for your great love for us, Jesus, that put you on the cross uh, for our sins. And we thank you today. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay. So again, um, this first part of Acts, you know, there's some some familiarity there for those who went through the gospel of of Luke with us at the end of Luke. Uh, But just to read those first three verses again. He says, in my first book, I told you Theophilus about everything Jesus began to do um, and teach, so there Theophilus is reminded of the contents of the Gospel of Luke. Um, the name Theophilus is a cool name; uh, it means friend of God, you know someone who is a friend of God and, and you know we think that this is likely you know, a very, a very real person that uh, you know not just a general anybody who calls himself a friend of God but a very real person that 's uh, being written to." But in any case, hopefully this morning you can say that you're a friend of God um, and you can take this as being written to yourself you know, today or that at some point soon in your life you would be able to take that and say this is written to me and I can understand this and, uh, and uh, apply it. And so it's verse 2 it says, Until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit, and during the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time And he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he taught to them about the kingdom of God. And so we're going to look at that a little bit more this morning uh, just to remind us um, of where we've been, if you did the Gospel of Luke, and and to set that foundation if you're new with us this morning. um, And a special welcome to you. Um, But in Luke, really you have these two themes that are dominant throughout the Gospel of Luke. One is you know, Jesus is the, the Savior, and the other is that Jesus is the King. Uh, that Jesus is the Savior and that Jesus is the King. And we have to understand that that is you know, really a purpose of the Gospel um, of Luke as we, as we have studied. And then Acts being the life of the early church and their mission to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit so that every man, woman, and child would know that Jesus is the Savior and the King. So we have that revelation in the Gospel of Luke and then we have the application of the revelation in the book of Acts. Um, And that's vital for us um, to understand because in verse 4 he says, uh, he said, once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We'll be coming back and talking more about this today and through the the Book of Acts about um, receiving the Holy Spirit and what that what that means and what the implications of that you know are. But I want to go ahead um, to verse six because this is is really important uh, as part of our before we get into that um, to understand that the disciples, um, as we saw in the book of the end of Luke, and these are, are again parallel that even after the resurrection of Jesus, they still don't fully get it. Because here in verse 6 they say, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, not just once, but they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Has that time come? Because remember, from as soon as they could understand anything as children, they understood that they were dominated by the outside Roman oppressors um, who controlled everything in their land. And with, as they read the Old Testament scriptures and they, sat, they saw God's deliverance time and time again from oppressors, they had this in their minds, perhaps you know, in our generation, in our time, we will see the freedom of Israel and the restoration of Israel. And since they were small children, this was their greatest hope in life. This is their greatest hope in life is to see the, the oppressors defeated and themselves restored into their own kingdom. When you have something that's ingrained since you were a little kid, as you know, this is the most important thing in life, this is our great hope as a people, it takes a lot to replace that with a higher ideal. It takes a lot. And we see this because the disciples got to, to live with Jesus for three years and to see his ministry and his miracles and to hear all his teachings. And he's died on the cross and he's risen from the dead and they're still asking that question that they asked when they were five, ten years old. Are we going to be free from our Roman oppressors? They're still asking that same question. Has the time come free to free Israel and restore our kingdom. And some of that is valid, too, because you know they're, they're trusting in the promises that they've read in the Old Testament scriptures. But they just don't understand, really, the higher priority and, and the timing of God. Um, when we go back to uh, the book of Luke, we'll go back there for just a couple minutes, in Luke 24, in verse 19, um, we have the scene where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, this is after his resurrection, but he's, you know, hiding his identity, and he's going with these two disciples um, along the road, and, you know, he, he asks them this, you know, he's having this conversation with them, and he acts like he doesn't really know what's, what's happened. Of course, he knows better than anybody else because it happened to him, but, you know, he says in verse 19, you know, kind of like, what things happened? Jesus asked, and they say, The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, he was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they had crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel, and this all happened three days ago. So this is on the day of Jesus' resurrection, and he's walking with these two, and they're asking the questions, and he's going... You know, in their minds, you know the one that they had hoped would be the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the King, is what that really means, is what that's all about. But now, they're what are they calling him? Well, he was a prophet and he was a teacher. Because he died, we're not free from the Roman oppressors. He couldn't be the Christ, so he has to be back into the category of good teacher and prophet, into those categories. And then we have Jesus say this in verses 44 through 49. You know, again, you know, we're, just, we're kind of going through this quickly, but with those two disciples, they take the bread and the cup. Their eyes are, are open, and they, or they take the bread, I should say, and their eyes were open. They saw him who he was, and then he disappeared from them. And then they run back to Jerusalem, and they're with all the other, you know, with the disciples. And Jesus appears, and in verse 44 of Luke 24 He says, Jesus said to them, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, um, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem that there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of these things, and now I send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with the power from heaven. So there we have it. Jesus saying, you know, yes, that he is the king, but they needed to understand that he was a king that had to die. He had to die, you know, for the forgiveness of our sins, and that now they're supposed to take you know, this, this message to all the nations, really to all the families of the earth, that he is the, the Messiah and that repentance of sins is available for all who repent. Well, what does it mean to repent? Well, to repent means to, to turn, literally. I mean, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a 180 degree turn. So it's a turning from, you know, the false beliefs. Because every, everyone really has an idea, you know, you go to any place, you go to any culture, and, you know, everybody has an idea of what is going to save them. Even if they don't even have a clear idea of, you know, heaven or, or, or hell, the, you know, they might have an idea of reincarnation or the next life, but they have a path to get there. There is a way. And also in every culture you have people who just say, well, I don't believe any of that, and I don't know what's up, but whatever. You know, is kind of the, the deal, that, but I don't believe any of it. You, of course, you have some of those, but in general terms, in every culture... On the earth, there is an idea of something after this life, the physical life, that that you continue on in some way. It's just a matter now of, with Jesus, understanding that he is the Savior and the King, turning from those other beliefs, whatever cultural, religious, traditional beliefs those were, and turning to Jesus and submitting to him as the Savior and the King can't save yourself, only Jesus can do that. So now they're supposed to take this message to all the families of the earth, and we know that that was God's plan from the very beginning, as God promised to Abraham that in his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. It's It's not a new thing that with Jesus God decided to do. It's a fulfillment of what Jesus had always been up to. What God had always been up to. And so in Acts, back to Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, again, these are parallel passages, but he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. And he's talking about, you know, the the kingdom of God um, being in all of its fullness, including the freedom of Israel and and all of that. But that's a future thing. And he says, that the, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that really is to be our mission and to be our purpose that as we have opportunity in every place we go, and sometimes this makes us uncomfortable, and sometimes this pushes an interesting. Uh, positions um, Down in Mexico it, you know Two little instances One We had the opportunity to go um, To a, a, the main prison That's up in the mountains um, In Zangalica And that place is often a, It can be a very dark um, And discouraging place But the Lord is working there Delaney spent a lot of her time there um, In the month that she was um, In that place And she could tell you um, About it um, But in you know, in that place with the prison, we had the opportunity to go in. Uh, they go there every week and, and visit the people, and there's a group of believers in the prison that they meet with and encourage. Um, and that's a beautiful time that we've been able to be part of. But this time, um, with the young people, they had some dramas and music and things. And so we were able just to be set up in the main prison yard and to do this. I'm not brave going into that prison. Now, I think the parents of 13, 14 year olds who are putting their parents in that environment are brave, certainly. Um, And and there's a risk that's in there. It's not necessarily a high risk. I mean, there's guards and there's good people that are in there. But at the same time, there are also murderers in there. And, you know, there's some bad people in there, some very bad people in there. Um, But we're able to, you know, share the gospel openly and clearly. And what is the message? And it's a pretty easy message in in that environment because it's not hard to convince the people in prison that they're sinners, you know, I mean, it's kind of an acknowledged thing at that point. But it may be a little more difficult to, to, for them to believe that God loves them and is, desires to save them. That might be the hard, harder part to believe and to understand. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in terms of culture, about where we start with the gospel, uh, with people and what parts. We have to tell the whole gospel, but there's parts in different cultures that we emphasize more because of the need. Because some parts are easier to accept than other parts. And so when people are just like, yes, I'm a sinner, well, you don't have to sit there for the next 45 minutes continuing on about how they're sinners. They kind of get that. You know, in other cultures, you might have to talk about that for 45 minutes because people think, yeah, I'm great. You know, I'm going to get to heaven on my own awesome sauce. You know, because I'm awesome. And that's just kind of how it goes. Um, But this is our message, that there is forgiveness of sins... For all who repent. Now again, in the minds of the disciples of Jesus, those first disciples of Jesus, they're having a hard time overcoming their cultural hang-ups, and it's really not until they are filled with the Holy Spirit that under, their cultural understandings change. It's really not until Pentecost, which we'll really get into next week when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they're being prepared for that because they're there in that upper room and they are praying. And that prayer is preparing them for the change that's coming. But it's really not until they're filled with the Holy Spirit that they, can, they see their priority in life and their desires in life truly being changed to God's desires. If there's one thing you get from this morning... Let that be it. It's not until they're filled with the Holy Spirit that they can see their culture for what it is, they can see their agenda for what it is, and how it's not the same as God's agenda and God's priority for them. And they have to change. And so I want to talk about culture for a minute um, because every one of us who's a follower of Jesus, you know, we're all placed into a culture, we're born into a culture, we grow up in a culture and we should examine the cultural influences in our lives. You know, we really need to take some stock of that and to sit down and go, okay, what are the cultural things about how I, you know, the family I was born into, you know, what, so, what was my social location being brought up into, and how does that affect how I see the world and how I think and how I perceive and how I view God and how I view other people because, you know, that, those things all play a factor. And as, as we see with the disciples, it's a really large factor. Again, those people spent three years with Jesus and still couldn't get past some of their cultural hang-ups until they're filled with the Spirit. And then that's even, as we'll see in the book of Acts, sometimes a learning and an ongoing process. It's not like it was all instantaneous. There is a big shift, but that shift even had to be tweaked more and more along the way. I think the same thing's true for us. So, in every culture, there are things that we can respect. we got three R's. Things you can respect, things you can redeem, and things you can reject in every culture. There are things that should be respected. You know, when I'm in Mexico, um, there's a familial love that the people have. Respect, you know, we respect that. There's a, and in, in, we're in the southern part of Mexico, and so they even take our southern hospitality to a whole nother level And we can respect that hospitality. There's a a culture of hard work that we can respect, that culture of hard work. Um, I was there one time and walking along the street and there's a man that has no legs and he's laying bricks on the sidewalk. You know, he's mixing, you know, the cement and he's throwing it down and he's, you know, moving himself around with his hands and he's working hard and fast. And I'm like, man, that's tough. But he is working hard for his, his food and for his family. You respect that. I got so much respect for that man. So much respect. You respect those sort of things. But then there's things to, you know, that need to be redeemed in a culture. Because there's some aspect of it that's, that's good. Um, but then it can, it, can almost, it can be to an extreme to them where it's not healthy. And it's bad and needs to get redeemed. Um, you know, in the Mexican culture, there's a thing called melancismo or melanchista, um, and it's it, you know it, it's where a lot of the, the the good humility there's a good humility in Mexico, but this is is almost like a, a self hatred sort of humility. It's a twisted sort of humility uh, that prefers that gives preference to the outsiders or to foreigners. At the detriment of one's own self, um, the name um, Malanchista or Malanchismo, um, it, it comes from a story. It comes from the you know it comes right out of the history of Mexico from the um, early 1500s uh, when the Spaniards and you know Cortez came in and he and he came in right there near the port city of Veracruz. You know that's the, that area. They marched right through. Where we are, in order to get to what is was the you know capital of the Aztec Empire, which is now you know Mexico City, and so you know the area that we're in is just full of of history, full of history, and the places and, and what you see, and so this um, woman named La Malinche, Malinche, she was born late 1490s, early 1500s, and so in that Gulf Coast, in that same region that we're in. Um, and after her father died, her mother remarried and then had a son. And so in her culture, you know, growing up, she was no longer valuable because the son took the priority. And so then she was sold to another ethnic group, okay? She eventually ends up with this group of people called the Tobascans. And the Tobascans gave her and 19 other young women as a gift to the Spanish conquistadors, Okay, so that's how that went down. Now because of her cultural background and being, you know, where she was socially located and she was very intelligent, she learned Nahuatl, which was the primary Indian language, she used Maya, the Mayan language, so she was, you know, she had those two and probably multiple variations of those dialects. And then she learned Spanish very quickly. So she was beautiful, she was intelligent. And she, you know, used that to her advantage. And I think she saw the Spanish conquistadors of better to be with them than with others. That was, you know, she's a survival survivalist. You know, and so I don't, you know, I, I think it's wrong. History, you know, kind of paints her in a bad light. But I think it's, that's unfair to her because she's a survivor. And she's working to survive and doing what is necessary to survive. But in that, without her, it's unlikely that Cortez has a success in Mexico, you know, what becomes Mexico, um, that he has. She, you know, hears about a plot, tells the plot, is able to use that as a way for them to have a great military victory, um, you know, over, <laughs> over the Aztecs. And so, you know, she's, you know, responsible in some ways. And so, for many people... She's viewed that as a traitor. We wouldn't view her that way, but she's viewed at by many people as a, you know, as a traitor and one who preferred the foreigner and one who helped you know, that domination of colonialism happen. So that's where you get the word, that person's a malanchista. Okay, so what does that look like in an everyday life scenario? Well, I'll give you an example. So we go to go get tacos, which is one of my favorite things to do anywhere, but especially in Mexico because they're authentic and they're incredibly delicious. Um, so we go to get, get tacos and go with Abdiel and with Eduardo and another brother. And so just to set the scene, Eduardo is across from me here and Abdiel is here. And the place where the uh, kitchen, you know, the waitresses and waiters are is over here. And so Abdiel drove. He's got the pesos. You know, I'm along for the, you know, we're along for the rod. And you know, we enjoy these delicious tacos. And um, at the end of it, Abdiel asked for the check. So he asked for the check. And when she brings the check, she walks past him behind me and then slides the check in front of me. I'm like, hmm, that's a little odd. Let me just, uh, you know, so I slide it over to Abdiel. And, you know, he Puts pesos down. She comes back. You know, it's directly in front of him now. It's not anywhere near me. Directly in front of him. So she takes it. You know, goes and makes a change. When she brings a change back, she does the same thing and comes and slides back in front of me. And I'm like, I didn't pay. He paid. You know, what is going, you know, what is going on here? What is going on here? And so I say to him, you know, I give it to him. And I'm like, you know, did you see that? He's like, you know, I could tell, I mean, on his face. You know, he, he saw exactly what happened. I said, you know, how does that make you feel? And he's like, well, in my flesh it can make me angry. But I know who I am in Christ. I know my identity in Christ. And so, you know, I'm okay. Um, and, you know, we had a conversation about it. like, And, and so, I, you know, I related to him. I said, well, for me it makes me sad because even though y'all are the same, she views, by, by viewing you l- lower than are worthy of less respect she's viewing herself in the same light that's not good you know that's not healthy that's a sad thing and it's a and it's a subtle cultural law it's not even necessarily a conscious thing but it's a subtle cultural law about who is higher and who is lower that's based on nothing because we're basically i mean we're dressed i mean the same i mean we're not, i mean it's based on nothing but the colors of our skin nothing but that and so, you know, what's going on there in that situation? And, and it's, it's a subtle lot to him that he's not as valuable or as important as, and it's a subtle lot to me that I'm more valuable and more important than, and it plays to the natural sin in my heart, which is pride. It plays to that natural sin. And so it does violence to him, It does violence to her and it does violence to to me because it encourages me to be part of an oppressive systemic system that I don't really want to have anything to do with in terms of my spirit before Jesus. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't want to promote that or to perpetuate that. But it's a plate of my natural flesh that does desire the first place to be preferred, and to be viewed as better than someone else for whatever reason. And so we have to identify that law, and we want to maintain the humility, but we want to expose the law of humiliation. They'll expose the law that humiliates in the culture, and so we need to redeem that out, keep the good, and get rid of what is not. But that's a real, I mean, that's, that's real life. And the reality is, okay, that's happened there in that situation. But do you understand that that's happening to us, all of us, every day in our community here in Athens, Georgia? The difference is, there, it's really easy for me to see because it's not my culture. And so I can identify pretty quickly and easily something that's like, oh, that's different, or that's weird, or that's... What's going on there? And it poses a question. But in our culture here, there can be things that happen to us every single day that are just so normal and so much a normal part of our daily life and accepted that we don't even think about it. That you don't even think about either the privilege or the dishonor that you're receiving, depending on you know, who you are and your social location. But you don't even see it. You don't even know it is happening to you. And that's tough, but that's reality. And in every culture, you know, and I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm picking on that that culture where I just was, but there's one. There's, then there's just the obvious, like you just got to reject this, okay? In, in Spanish, what's the word for wife? Our Spanish speakers, help me out. What's the word for wife? Esposa. What's the word for handcuffs? Esposas. More than one. And the only reason there's more than one because there's more than one handcuff, right? Is there another word in Spanish for handcuffs? I have asked, I have asked, I have asked, and no, there is not another word. It's not like, oh, we have this joke that we can say sometimes. It's like, no, the real view is that a wife and being handcuffed are equivalent And it's not viewed, now you might want to say, well, okay, let's take it in a nice way, like, you know, you're both bonded to each other, and da-da-da-da-da. No. No, it goes back to the old ball and chain, you know, sinful view of marriage. It's a a sinful mentality, you know, that's so embedded in the culture that most people, even followers of Jesus, don't initially recognize, wait, that's kind of messed up. Why don't we have another word for this? Because it's just so normal. You see, what my point with that is: it's so normal, it's so part of every day. It's just kind of like, oh, maybe that isn't the best. Maybe we should have a different word for that, you know. And it's like, you know, you have to recognize. All right, so those are things there, and sometimes it's easier. Sometimes it's easier to exegete a, a different culture than to exegete your own culture. What do, what do I mean by that? Wait, wait, exegete, what are you talking about? Okay, so when we talk about the scriptures, we exegete the scriptures. What we're trying to do is try to take off our cultural lenses and to see the scriptures as they are, the truth of God's word, the principles that are taught, and then we want to apply those to our, to our culture, and that's exegesis. Eisegesis is when you just read your ideas, and you read your culture into the Bible, and it supersedes and imposes, and, and you say, now this is what the Bible says. And that's a terrible way to handle the scriptures. But it's also a terrible way to handle cultures because we can go, well, this is my culture, and we just read somebody else's culture through our own culture. So to exegete the culture means you try to take off your own cultural lenses so you can see from their perspective and to learn from their perspective and to try to understand what's being thought and said and, and acted out. In our American culture, we have the same thing. You know, there's things to respect, things to redeem things to reject. We can respect that in certain, you know, wars, we've, stopped, we've stepped up as a nation to fight evil in the world. We look back at World War II and we say, that was the right thing to do. We were late, but we were there, and it was the right thing to do. But now, you can also take things that are to be respected, and you can abuse that, and then you can say, well, anytime the United States military uses force, well, obviously it's just because, hey, remember World War II? We're the good guys. Well, that can be a... So that can be a trap. That could be a trap. There are things to redeem. You know, our, our nation, we have this ideal of freedom, this belief in freedom. But we have to redeem that because we know initially that freedom was largely designed for white males. But we can redeem that ideal of freedom for all people and that we have to strive to redeem that ideal for all people. And then we, there's things that we need just to reject. Our extreme individualism. And materialism are things that, as followers of Jesus, we don't even realize we're doing half the time. But we need to reject those things and say, "Okay, we got to we got to have some correction on that," because otherwise, we're just like the world, and whatever the world does, we do. So let's continue on Acts one nine through eleven, or we'll just continue on through fourteen. We've already read it, but basically, the idea is Jesus ascends. They're there waiting. The, the angels appear and say, Why are you standing here staring into heaven? He's going to come back in the same way you saw him go. And that's really important for us is that we do believe we have a Savior and King who's going to return. And when he does return, he will execute his judgment, most importantly, his justice on this earth. But until then, what are we supposed to be doing? Well, we're supposed to be, you know, teaching this, you know, forgiveness of sins for all who repent. And yes, essential in that is a belief in, in Jesus and beginning to follow him. But it, it's, it's supposed to really be a full repentance, a full turning to the ways of God. You know, it's not, what, what Jesus is asking for is not just a mental ascent of, yes, Jesus, I know historically speaking, you're the son of God. You came and died on the cross for our sins and you rose from the dead. Just a mental agreement with historical fact is not what Jesus is asking from, from us. Jesus is asking for us, for, us to, for him to be the savior and the king over our lives and our church, our community. That's what he's asking for. And ultimately, the world. and He'll receive that in the world. But that's what he's asking for. Not just the mental agreement, but really a submission to him that says, I'm not and you are. I'm not the savior, you are. I'm not the king, you are. That's what Jesus is looking for. And without that, you may have a religion you may have an amenable agreement with some of the truths of the Bible, but you do not have something, you don't have something worth living and dying for. You don't have something worth putting yourself out and putting your life on the line for all the time. You don't have something worth sacrificing for. Only if Jesus is really the Savior and King of your life and our lives collectively, do we have something worth living and dying for? has to go beyond just a mental agreement. So they have to be filled with the Spirit of God. We're going to see next week that filling you know, occur. Um, I don't want to get too much into that, but I also don't want to leave us um, too short, but I, I, wanna, I do want to emphasize that while they were waiting to be filled that they prayed, that in the life of Jesus, prayer was hugely important, and in the life of the early church, prayer is hugely important. Therefore, we have to ask the question, is prayer hugely important in my life and in the life of our church? I mean, those are questions we need to be able to answer affirmatively. That yes, we want to be people who pray, Yes, we are people who pray. Because we have to believe that the, re, the results that we, you know, that God working with us and through us is attempting to see in our community, in our world, in our church, isn't going to happen just through the efforts of our flesh, but it's, a, it's spiritual. It's spiritual. And so, therefore, we have to be people who, if we want to see spiritual results, we have to be people who who pray, and are then filled with the Holy Spirit. What I want to make just a quick distinction, and we'll talk more about this next week, and there's plenty of scripture um, you know, to back this up, but in general, when people believe in Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit. God, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit comes and makes his home you know, within you. And you have fellowship with God you know, within you. But then there's also being filled with the Spirit, also you know, synonymous with that, I believe, you know, walking in the Spirit. And that's not the same thing as just having the Spirit. Because I think at this point, you know, the disciples, they, they have the Spirit, but they're not, in the, they're not living and working through the power of the Holy Spirit yet. And so there is a question there, and again, we'll, we'll hit this more next week, but there's a question there of, you know, do you have the Spirit, which you, you, know, you have to have that initial faith to receive, but then the question is, are you living in the power of the Holy Spirit? Because living in the power of the Holy Spirit means some victory over sin, and living in the power of the Spirit means that people around you are affected by your life. And I think that we could argue as we look at the book of Acts and we look at the life of the early church that if people in your life aren't being affected and changed by your presence, that perhaps the power of the Spirit and the walking of the Spirit isn't as present as it should be, just say that softly, but isn't present as it should be. And that perhaps would be a challenge. And so that's really, because as we look at the scriptures, you know, why do we look at it? We don't... Yes, we look at it in some ways to be affirmed, like Theophilus, hey, you can be certain of your, your faith is in a good place and your faith is real. So yes, the scripture has a place of affirmation in our lives, but it also has a, a tremendous role of, of challenge. And I think as we see the life of the early church, as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to be challenged personally and collectively of our identity and our power and who we are and the difference that we're to make in our communities and in our world. But we want to be people, ultimately, who have the same mission and purpose and priority in life that Jesus wanted his first disciples to have. And they finally do get it, as we'll see as we go through the book of Acts. But we want to be ones who get that, but it comes through prayer and being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And there has to be a desire. You know, they, if they had disobeyed and said, well... We're not going to go back to Jerusalem and we're not going to pray and we're not going to wait and we're not going to be patient but we're just going to go back to our fishing jobs. We're going to go back to whatever else it was that we used to do. And again, there wasn't nothing, anything wrong with fishing. It's just that these, for these particular guys, God called them to do something different. But if they had said, we're just going to go do our lives the way we want to do our lives and the way we've always done our lives, they would have missed out on turning the world upside down. And so we don't want to miss out on our part of turning the city upside down and other parts of the world upside down. We don't want to miss out on that, and so therefore we put Jesus and his priorities first, and we pray and we seek to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, your goodness in our lives, and this morning is talk about... um, some difficult things, some challenging things. We ask in it that we would know fully your love and your grace that calls us higher. And that calls us, uh, calls us to, be, um, to be filled with your spirit, dear God. We pray that we would be people who pray and we would be people who are filled and we would be people who make an impact and a difference um, in a similar way as, as the early church that we um, see in the book of Acts. And so, Lord, help us to, to desire that, but help us also to understand that there's a price to be paid for that. And help us to be willing to pay it. But we can do none of it, Lord, without you, without your spirit, without your help, your grace and mercy in our lives. Without your filling, without your power, Lord. And so even in this time, we ask that you would be glorified and that you would fill us. As we take the bread and we take the cup that represents your body and blood, dear Jesus, uh, we say thank you. Please examine our hearts and help us to confess anything that isn't unpleasing to you. Help us to take it with thanksgiving and thankfulness. And Help us to be filled with your spirit. In your name, Jesus, we ask it.